He's already been dead and it's messed with his head. It's John's post-life crisis. Welcome to John's post-life crisis. I am your host, John Johnston, founder and manager of cornnation.com, your Nebraska Cornhusker site of being thankful for all that we have. This episode, we're talking with Dr. Uzma Samandani. Dr. Samandani is a brain injury researcher and neurosurgeon from Minneapolis. And we're going to be talking about CTE and, well, brains. That's what we're going to be talking about. So let's start with that. Can you, Dr. Samandani, can you give us a kind of a base definition of CTE just so we start from the scratch and we start from ground zero? Yes, absolutely. My pleasure. Um, Thanks for inviting me to be on your show and I'm happy to be here. Um, So basically CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the way that the NIH, which is sort of the people who fund a lot of research in the United States, have defined it is it's a pathologic diagnosis, which means it's something that you see underneath a microscope when you look at, you know, sections of, of brain from someone basically who's dead. You don't usually take brain out of people who are living. Um, and what they've defined it as is the presence of abnormal proteins in places where they're not supposed to be um, you know, sort of in, in locations where, they're, where it's not normal to find them. And the protein that's abnormal is phosphorylated tau. So tau is a, a protein that's normally present, um, but it's in other locations, and it's part of the structural organization of the brain. And what has happened is it's become phosphorylated, and it's curled up, and it's clumped, and it's in the wrong places. And that is the definition of CTE as purported by the federal government. Um, So now what people are usually talking about when they say the words CTE, usually what they mean is the global chronic effects of neurotrauma. They're referring to people who are living with consequences of brain injury that are usually generally due to a multiple number of different problems in their brain. And, you know, to simplify it, into one sort of problem is probably simplistic. Um, the, the brain is much more complicated than, than most people realize, and there are so many different things that can go wrong. And so to attribute it all to one protein that's clumped in the wrong place is probably simplistic. Um, does that, is that a good start, John? It is. It, I mean, when you do, you define it like that, it doesn't really sound very scary, but I have no idea. You know what I mean? It, 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 yes, it's a good definition, but I, you know, you might as well have been saying blah, 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 blah to an ignorant person. You know what I mean? Their protein's clumped in the wrong area. That doesn't sound horrible at all, but well, obviously the effects are. Yeah. So let me, let me clarify a little further then. When I say what people are talking about, when, when, when you hear the letter CTE, you probably think of the chronic effects of neurotrauma, or in other words, you think of the consequences of brain injury for any one person. You think of perhaps you know, a, a football player or some other athlete who's had a long history of exposure to blows to the head, and you're thinking about you know, his pattern of behavior or her pattern of behavior, or um, his particular 
affective disorders, which affective disorders just mean things like, you know, your inability to control your emotions. You're happy when you shouldn't be. You're sad when you shouldn't be. Um, you know, you have maybe profound depression or irritability, you know, a lack of ability to control how you feel. Um, that's what people think of when they think of CTE. But what that actually is, is the chronic effect of neurotrauma, which means it is a syndrome that consists of multiple different etiologies that, you know, has many different reasons for existing um, and is not necessarily attributable to a single problem, such as clumping of, you know, one abnormal type of protein in the brain. It's more likely attributable to multiple different problems. And, you know, I can give you examples. So there, there are about at least 12 genes that are associated with chronic effects of neurotrauma. Some of those genes have short-term impact. So if you have a brain injury, you have a slower recovery because maybe you don't turn over neurotransmitters as quickly. Um, or you may have a normal recovery from the immediate brain injury, but be more likely to have dementia down the road because you have an abnormal receptor for a different protein in your brain somewhere else. So we know that there are at least 12 different genes that impact recovery from brain injury. And not all of those result in the pathology known as CTE. I think of them collectively as the chronic effects of neurotrauma. So the, the things that play a role are, are genetics and environment. It's the nature of the injury. I think of brain injury in my mind as a salad. And the salad has multiple different ingredients. And some of the ingredients are things like you know, stretched or torn neurons. Other um, ingredients are, you know, when, when you have bleeding in your brain, the blood breaks down and it leaves behind iron and the iron is toxic to the neurons. And so that's another ingredient in the salad. And so you've got all of these different types of brain injury that can be happening simultaneously in the same person and they're all leading to chronic effects. And you know, some of the chronic effects are worse than others, and in some people, they're worse than others. So it's a much, much more complicated problem than what would be suggested you know, if it were just a single protein, pro, you know, protein clumping in a particular location. So I would say that the chronic effects of neurotrauma are much more complicated than most people realize because there are so many different things that can go wrong. In, in the public sphere, especially when it comes to football, and I write about football, this has been really, you're talking about the complexities of this. This has kind of been dumbed down, and I hate to say, quote, the media, end quote, yeah. uh, down to you banged your head too many times, and it isn't even about concussions. It's about the fact that you had sub-concussion hits to your head, and football is bad, and sports are bad, and it really has nothing to do with genes or I don't iron, you know what I mean? It's yeah. become this thing that is CTE and football. And yeah. what you're saying is, is a, it's way more complex than that. Uh, B, I guess the question that's coming out of that is has further research determined who is more likely to have, CTE as a neurodegenerative disease, is that the right term? Yeah, so 
basically, I think what we have to do is we sort of have to take a step back and put this all in perspective. And the first thing we have to realize is that the vast majority of people who have a brain injury in the United States and in the world do not get their brain injuries from sports. The number one cause of brain injury in the United States right now in five states is falls, and it's falls in the elderly. And that generally is due to deconditioning as people age. Um, the number two cause generally is car accidents, um, and then other accidents would be number three. So things falling on the head. Most people who have a brain injury um, sustain it in an unanticipated way. So they're not doing sports that have a high risk for head impacts, but they're doing something at home, like you know, taking a book off a shelf or something like that, and something falls and hits them on the head. So it, brain injury shouldn't be thought of as a sports problem. Brain injury should really be thought of as a societal problem. So that's the first thing that I wanna say. Um, and there are a lot of problems with how we study brain injury because, you know, the majority of, of National Institutes of Health funding and Department of Defense funding goes to study brain injury in athletes. The largest funded studies in the United States are the NCAA DOD CARES Consortium, which studies brain injury in young college athletes. Um, young college athletes represent the fittest 1% of our society. So they're not representative of the average person who gets brain injury. And what we learn from them is incredibly valuable. It's a laboratory for the rest of the world to, to understand brain injury, but it's not representative of brain injury in the general population. So that, that would be the first thing I would say. Now, the problem with, with football is football has become the inadvertent poster child for brain injury. You know, when someone puts an article about brain injury in any, you know, newspaper, magazine, whatever, they always show a picture of a football player as if to say, you know, football is the number one cause of brain injury. And, you know, this is where people get brain injuries. And, you know, the reality is, is that the vast majority of people do not get their brain injuries playing football. And football does not result in a, a large number of brain injuries for most people. Um, what we need to understand and what we need to keep in perspective is that there have been a number of very sound epidemiologic studies that have shown that playing sports in general is better for your health than not playing sports. And we're talking about studies that look at long-term outcomes. So there was a paper that was recently published um, it's, and for those of you who are on Twitter, it's on my Twitter feed. It's, I'm at Dr. Samadani, D-R-S-A-M-A-D-A-N-I. And in this paper that was recently published, they showed that NFL players who played for up to 10 years at the professional level outlived their peers. So in other words, they lived longer than their peers who did not play professional football. Um, there have been other studies that have shown that at the high school and at the college level, um, children who play sports are less likely to be depressed. They're less likely to have other social disorders, uh, you know, complex psychosocial disorders, and they're less likely to commit suicide than their peers who do not play sports. Now that holds true even for football. So in other words, the depression rates and the suicide rates are lower for children and young adults who play football than for people who don't play football. And we've sort of lost sight of that because 
as a research community, you know, it's sort of the brain injury community in general, we've started to get an understanding of brain injury and its consequences. And that has been very, very valuable for us. But we can't use that to say, oh, hey, sports are bad, because we haven't measured the risk-benefit profile of sports. And that's the fundamental problem, is that we, we, it's wrong to condemn a sport without understanding the risk-benefit. And it's, in my opinion, it is extremely likely that if we could quantitate objectively risk-benefit for, for something like football, we would be able to, to concretely say, yes, the benefit of playing sports, you know, and this particular sport outweighs the risk for most children. And, you know, as you know, my son played football um, in high school. And in his particular case, it was exactly that. I weighed the risk benefit for him in particular. He's an asthmatic. He had a poor lung capacity, so he couldn't run very well. Um, and he found his niche in sports, you know, in, in football in particular. He couldn't play soccer. He couldn't do cross country. Those were his other fall options. He loved football. Um, from a psychological perspective, it really changed him. Um, he he's, he unfortunately uh, had very nerdy parents on both his mother's and his father's side. And so he had a, a predisposition to having a very introverted personality. And football completely changed that. He was able to develop normal relationships with other children, despite his innate nerdiness, um, you know, and, and that was incredibly beneficial for him. And, you know, my son is, is one kid. I saw this in all of the other children who played football with him. And I've seen it, you know, societally when I, when I go places and I talk to people who've, who've played sports. You know, kids who play sports tend to be better adjusted than kids who don't. Sorry. I thought you were going to go with uh, he had nerdy parents, therefore he had no athletic ability whatsoever, which is what my kids got from me. My wife is much more athletic than I am, but they they got nothing from me on the athlete side. They got the ability to like poke themselves in the eye with a pencil. Yeah, well, he did get that as well. So you're right. Um, unfortunately, I was not a star athlete. But, you know, to me, that's the advantage of football also is that it is a sport that can be attractive to children of different talents. And, you know, not every child has the physiology to be a cross-country runner or a tennis player or a, a soccer player. But many of those children, you know, the children with larger BMIs, for example, the larger body habitus, they will find a, an opportunity to get active in football. And that can be life-changing. I mean, my, my son had a colleague on his team who was by absolutely no, you know, no, there was no possible measure that could come up with anything less than morbidly obese for him. He was a very, very large child. And he learned to, he, you know, they literally pulled him off the couch and, and made him try out for football. And this kid got in such phenomenal shape that he actually started playing other sports. And his parents said it transformed him. It made him into such a different person because he was able to find friendships and, and develop physical um, capacity through football. And so I, I think football can be transformative for the, for the appropriate child. So CTE, along with other neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, I'm sure there's many of them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they're terrifying. I mean, my own brain injury, I know that 
I, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, Dr. Samandani was my neurosurgeon when I went to the tra- traumatic brain injury clinic at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis uh, after my heart attack. Um, the first question I asked you was, am I going to get Alzheimer's? And you, your first response was, that's the first question everybody asks you after they've had a brain injury. Yes. But the, the, the fear of the unknown there is, it's overwhelming at times. <clears throat> it's overwhelming me right now. Yeah. But, you know, the idea that someday my wife is going to have to take care of a, a blubbering, drooling, you know, idiot that can't fend for himself or watch that decay. Yeah. If there's a question there, but that's I that has to be why most parents look at sports like football or look at their children and say, I never want them to have to deal with that, just like I never want my wife to have to deal with that with me. I mean, yeah. how do you respond to that that fear, that strong fear of the unknown, I guess? Yeah, and this is a a fabulous question. And like I said, I do get asked this a lot. Um, my my typical response to most parents when they say to me, you know, will my child who just had a brain injury end up with dementia? I will say to them that, you know, there are known risk factors for dementia and they are hypertensity, you know, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, smoking, social isolation, being hard of hearing. You know, we have known risk factors for dementia. Certain medications increase your risk. You know, physostigmine increases your risk. Um, those will increase your risk for dementia. You got to realize two thirds of people who have dementia in the United States are women who never played contact sports. So the single greatest risk factor for being, for having dementia is, is gender or sex um, that's independent of a history of contact sports. Playing sports does not increase your risk for neurodegenerative conditions in general, not at the high school level, not at the college level. At the NFL level, there may be some risk associated with particular positions. So the risk-benefit profile changes the higher up you get. Um, what, what we also know is that children who played sports at high school level are more likely to be active at age 35 and at age 55. They're less likely to have neurodegenerative conditions later on in life. Um, so so it, it's, it's really a matter of risk-benefit. When you talk about the chronic effects of neurotrauma, it's real. There's, there's a higher risk for depression in people who have brain injury. There's a higher risk for uh, pension disability in the largest epidemiologic study. Um, there's a higher risk for suicidality. Even six years after a brain injury, there's a higher risk for suicidality. But what that, that doesn't mean that a child who plays sports and has a concussion has a higher risk for committing suicide than a child who didn't play sports and, and didn't have a concussion. It's, it's a matter of risk-benefit unique to each child. And so it's, it's, you'd have to look at the math and the numbers, but it, and it's complicated to explain. But generally speaking for most children, the risk of injury is almost the same whether they play sports or not. And so you have to be attentive to the type of sport that they're playing and you know, the, the, the nature of the child. So you know, we talked about genetics already, but there are genes that predispose to risk-taking behaviors. Um, you know, there are genes that are more likely in people who are mountain climbers. I don't know if you've, you guys have seen these movies about the um, people who do free solo climbing. Um, there's a, the, uh, one of them's named Chin, I forget the other guy's name. 
but uh, they they climb up these these mountains like you know in Yosemite, and you know without ropes. And if you do genetic analyses of these people, they they and and functional MRI, they've conditioned themselves to have no fear. So genetics has a huge impact in risk taking behaviors, and that impacts brain injury, and it also impacts recovery from brain injury. Um, I, I digress a little bit, but fundamentally, yes, brain injury definitely has risks. Your type of brain injury, you know, the type you had, which is from a heart attack, is actually one of the types of brain injuries from which it's hardest to recover because the brain was deprived of oxygen, and that that is one of the worst types of ingredients in the salad. Um, if that that's, makes that's sense. <laughs> That's, that's not comforting. <laughs> well, it's, it's reality. But, you know, you're doing all the right things. You know, one of the most important things to do after you have an injury like that is to, is to get back out and exercise. And, you know, the fact that you're walking four miles a day and you're mountain biking again, that's going to bode well for you in the future. You're going to do better because of that. There's a guy named John Letty at the University of Buffalo who's written an entire, you know, career's worth of papers on how exercise helps you recover from brain injury. And, you know, it's, his stuff is phenomenal. I mean, he's got really concrete data showing that you improve the regulation of blood flow through the blood vessels in your brain by exercising, you know, gradually in an increased fashion after a brain injury. Um, you know, it's, it's not just hocus pocus stuff, it's really concrete science. So I, I think that there, there's a lot of evidence there. And, you know, we know that neurotransmitters turn over better after you exercise. And, and having that happen as you age is, is far better for you. So I think you're doing the right things. Okay. Well, can we talk about concussions for a bit? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> do we, do, it, it seems to me that from a layperson perspective, perspective, in other words, a person like me who is not a healthcare professional, who does not have any like healthcare background, that we seem to think that there's a clear cut definition of what a concussion is. That's not exactly true, is it? You are absolutely correct. Um, There are more than 40 different medical and sporting organizations that have defined concussion and not all the definitions are exactly the same. So if you go by, for example, um, you know, there's this large sporting group that consists of members of FIFA and the NFL and NCAA and, you know, many different uh, sporting organizations, and they meet every four years. And their last Congress, I think it was in Berlin um, in 2016, so they were due to meet in 2020, but they didn't. Um, they, when they last met, they defined concussion as Uh, symptoms resulting from a blow to the head. And the problem with that definition is that you may not necessarily have a brain injury, even if you have symptoms resulting from a blow to the head, because you may have injured your neck, you may have an inner ear problem, you may have, you know, a vasovagal problem, you may have a, you may have other problems that cause similar symptoms as a brain injury, but not actually have a brain injury. Um, And so that's their definition of concussion. Uh, and that's a widely used definition, but it's not necessarily the definition that, say, I and my laboratory use, because I use physiologic dysfunction of the the brain that's radiographically occult as my definition of concussion. 
Um, you know, it, it all depends on how you define it. So for, for most people on the street, you know, we think of concussion as something that happens after you get hit in the head. Um, and that's, that's pretty much the definition that many sporting organizations are using. But it's not necessarily a consistent definition across medicine. So you've done research into concussions. Yes. All Can you tell, my, us about, tell yeah. us about that? All of my research focuses on objective measures, which means things that you can measure that you don't just sort of make up um, for brain injury. And my lab has focused, I collaborate, I'm in bioinformatics and computational biology at the University of Minnesota, and I collaborate with a bunch of computer scientists. Um, a Dr. Roy Quang and a Dr. Yuk Sham are, are two of my collaborators. And what we're doing is we are, we are looking at objective ways to measure brain injury using things that don't depend on how you feel. So the measures that we use in our research are radiographic measures like um, CT and MRI. We use serum markers um, such as GFAP and UCHL1, and we use eye tracking. So eye tracking is something that I've been working on since about 2011. Um, we have spun out a company out of our lab. The company's called Oculogica. Oculogica was able to get FDA marketing authorization for aid in the diagnosis of concussion in 2018, um, and we are commercially available now. Um, but then that is a financial disclosure that I have. But um, ultimately, the hope is that by combining these objective measures, you can figure out what the ingredients in the salad are. You can figure out what the nature of brain injury is. You can figure out which pathologies are affecting somebody so that you can understand how to treat it. Um, and we're not obviously the only people working on this. There are a number of you know, laboratories all over the country that work on brain injury. Um, I'm, I'm part of a larger research group called Track TBI. Um, they've recruited 3,000 patients at 13 different hospitals across the country to understand brain injury better. Um, you know, I, I know a number of people in the field who have made significant progress, not looking only at these three measures that, you know, our lab focuses on, but also at other measures. When you, when you again, from a lay person, well, that's all I am. That's redundant. Yeah. When you look at the public sphere, and the CTE issues and the concussion issues. Yeah. It's almost as if we're told this science is settled already. Yeah. And if you bang your head too many times too hard, you're going to have problems. And that's the end of it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty complicated. I mean, I would say that we're, we're in our infancy in terms of understanding brain injury. We are where heart disease was in 1950. Um, so if you, if, you know, like the heart is a great example because, you know, it's so easy to measure function, right? It's a pump. You measure what comes in, you measure what comes out, you get an ejection fraction, you know how well the heart works, you know, done. And to measure electrical activity across the heart, there's an objective measure. You get an EKG, you can measure the electricity, right? You know, the brain doesn't have that. We don't have a measure for function that tells you how well your brain is working. And why is that? It's because everyone's brain is so incredibly unique. You know, when, from the moment they're born, people have different capacity. And, you know, things change over time. So if you're exposed to certain things, it, it changes your brain in ways that will impact long-term function. And so we don't have these 
clear objective measures for function that, you know, the other organs have in the body. And that makes it a lot harder. Um, you know, that makes it harder for, for coaches to figure out when someone can return to play. It makes it harder for employers to know when a, a person who's injured on the job can come back to work. Um, it makes it harder for doctors to take care of patients who say there's something wrong, but no one can measure it. Um, and so that's why we need objective measures. Okay. I was going to say that uh, when I started reading about this, there was this period of time between my heart attack and that I finally got uh, dis diagnosed with a TBI. Yeah. And I started reading a lot, as many books as I could. I, you know, I'm not going to become a neurologist, obviously. I don't have that capacity. But it seems to me that brains research is much more contentious, yeah. <laughs> contentious than it's portrayed publicly. And it, you know, like, yeah. there are people that are, there are people that say, that would say that you're a horrible parent for letting your child play football. Oh, yeah. And some of those people would be brain researchers. Yeah. Well, no, I haven't actually no person who works on brain injury who, who, you know, that I understand um, has ever said to me, why would you let your child play football? Because they understand the data just as well as I do. And many of them have children who play competitive sports. Um, in fact, I would say, on the contrary, it's people who don't understand brain injury who are more likely to be concerned because they don't understand the risk benefit threshold anywhere near as well as people who do. I'm at an advantage over the vast majority of parents because I would have better capacity to care for my child if he were to have a brain injury, um, you know, God forbid. So ultimately, I, I think to get back to your question, you know, what, how do we, how do we, how do we understand this from a societal perspective? I think that we, we have to allow children to develop their themselves, you know, physically and socially and sports are probably the best way to do that. And, you know, the risk of brain injury is, is very real, but we have to minimize it by number one, acknowledging it, taking care of it. Um, and, and number two, um, sort of have developing objective measures for it. Um, now, getting back to what you were saying about, you know, is this controversial? I think what's happened in medicine in general is a lot of people are, are, are they have their, their financial priorities. And so, for example, the, there was a movie that was made um, by Steve Devick, who markets the King Devick test for concussion. And he called it um, brain games or something like this. And essentially what he argued was that, um, that sports are incredibly dangerous. And, you know, when you watch that movie, anyone who watches that movie would immediately think, you know, I should never let my child play sports. But you got to realize this movie was made by a guy who's trying to market a concussion test direct to consumers, not a medical test, not something that's cleared by the FDA, but something that's going direct to consumers. And I think that, you know, he has an ulterior motive. Um, and there are a number of other organizations that have those motives. You know, the people who've simplified the, the chronic effects of neurotrauma and turned it into sort of this, this thing called CTE that they've, you know, they've, they've made complex pathophysiology into one pathology. You know, what they're trying to then do is say, you know, this is one pathology, we can detect it, and we can treat it. 
And yet it's not even true. You know, it's not even responsible for the vast majority of cases, at least not as far as we know. So, so they have a profit motive. And, and that's a problem. You know, it's, it's a fundamentally, to me, that's a big problem. And I, you know, I, I don't, I've been called worse than, you know, than I've, I've been called an NFL shill. I've been called, you know, a parent who doesn't care about my child. Um, you know, neither of those is true. I've, I've been called worse. I don't know what to say, you know? <laughs> I just, I, I think it's interesting how they, you know, from a, regular person perspective, how dumbed down all of this is, is it go back to CTE for a second. Is there any way to determine if somebody has that before they're dead or is, is that a, is that any closer to happening? Well, I think it depends on you know, what you consider as CTE. If you're talking about deposition of tau, in, you know, sulci of the brain where it's not supposed to be, you know, this protein accumulating in abnormal places, yes, you could probably determine it with a PET scan um, looking for tau. Um, you know, there are certain types of imaging that can be helpful. Uh, what does that mean? I don't know. It, you know, you have to realize that we don't understand the implications of tau because we don't know if it's causative or just associative with the chronic effects of neurotrauma. And, you know, I'm on, a, I'm on a study section, I'm on a grant panel, and one of the studies was they were gonna accumulate tau protein in mice and treat it. And, you know, that's great and all, but it's making the exact same mistake that the Alzheimer's field made when they accumulated amyloid and treated it. And they spent literally billions of dollars and it didn't treat dementia one single bit. You know, every single study, 20 studies have failed. It's about $20 billion down the drain. Multiple companies have, have gone bankrupt trying to pursue treatment of amyloid deposition for dementia. And now the brain injury community sort of is kind of doing the same thing, where we're, we're treating tau for chronic effects of neurotrauma when we have no idea if it's causative. Um, so, you know, when you ask, is it possible to diagnose CTE in living people, I would say, if it is possible, is it useful? Um, I think what would be much more useful is to understand through objective measures, both the acute and chronic effects of neurotrauma globally, understand the pathophysiology completely, and then treat it. Oh my God. This is, this is a, so much to absorb. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I hope that, I mean, I, I tend to like condense things a lot. I don't know. I have to take a breath. Okay. I'm going to ask you hopefully one more question. Well, a couple more questions. Yes. Let's pull this. We're currently in a pandemic. Yeah. And the world turned upside down. Yeah. And then we have this CTE, which, you know, earlier I talked about the fact that having dementia or any kind of neurodegenerative disease would be is terrifying. Yeah. At the same time, we have seem to live now in the United States, particularly in a culture that is constantly worried about safety. Yeah. Everything is, is geared toward everyone must be safe and everything must be safe. And everywhere I go, I need to feel safe. What is, is this, this seems to me to be a setup to make everybody have more anxiety than ever. And it ignores the fact that there's an inherent risk in life. Uh, yeah. You, you remember Dr. Cole? Yeah. 
Okay, last last winter, I was preparing to, I was asked him if it was okay for me to go jump in a, in a participate in a polar challenge where I jumped in a frozen lake. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, you know, it's not any different than if you were frightened suddenly or if you're in a car accident or, you know, something else happened to you immediately that would shoot your heart rate up. So I don't see any problem with it. And he used the phrase that stuck with me, inherent risk in life, which there is. Every time I get up, every time I walk outside, there's an inherent risk there. And that seems to be completely thrown by the wayside with the word safe. Can you talk about that for a bit or discuss that? Sure. Well, with with regards to brain injury, I feel like it's mostly misperception. Um, I think that it's the risk-benefit profile of sports is such that benefit outweighs the risk. So I think what it is, is a lack of understanding of risk benefit, not only by the public, but by the scientific community, which, you know, has not spoken up enough about the fact that playing sports is probably more beneficial than not playing sports. Um, With regards to COVID, I actually think it's a different problem completely. COVID was a virus that was, you know, present in limited numbers early on. And had there been more definitive efforts to um, sort of restrict its spread, contain it, um, I think we would have we would have done much better. And even now, you know, if everybody just wore an N95 mask for three weeks, it would disappear because there would be no transmission and it would have no place to go. And that's how other democracies have succeeded in eliminating it. Um, you know, if you don't transmit it, then it's not going to be a problem. I, th- I think COVID is very different because, you know, brain injury doesn't, it does impact your immediate circle, but it's not communicable to, you know, other people in, in the sense that a virus is. And so the, the problem with a virus is that, you know, it's, it's not the football player getting it from another teammate that might be the problem, although that could pose a problem. It's more that they bring it home to their parents and their grandparents and their teachers, and those people might be at increased risk. So I, I think that it would have been relatively straightforward if everybody had just agreed you know, early on, okay, everyone wears a mask for the next three weeks, and then we would have been done with it. Um, that just never happened. And, and so I think it's a, it's a different problem. You know, Going back to your idea of there's inherent risk in many things, I think there is, but we also have to accept that science can help us. And, you know, science has helped us to understand the chronic effects of neurotrauma, but it's also created this huge unmitigated irrational fear about sports. Um, And here, science has helped us understand that, you know, viruses exist and we need to take measures to treat them. But we as a society have not taken those measures. And, and therefore, we're dealing with the consequences. What, you said that earlier that right now, brain research is like heart research back in 1950. Yeah. How many years, I, obviously, this is going to be researched for until the end of humanity. Right. I, I, I guess when I read this stuff, it's so complex that I, I don't see how anybody can really figure it out in the next two decades, but right. put yourself 10 years from now, what advances do you see in the area, not just CTE, but neurodegenerative diseases? What, are there any breakthroughs that are on the horizon 
to help with that stuff? I hope so. I think it, it, it requires a lot of fundamental changes in how we organize healthcare in our society, because right now, brain injury is not what you call reimbursed well, which means that there's no motivation for hospitals to set up clinics to treat people with brain injury. Because, so let's compare it to orthopedics, right? So a guy has a trauma, right? And suppose he breaks his leg. He goes in, he gets an x-ray. The orthopod looks at the x-ray. They said, broken, fix, two words, right? They take the guy to the operating room. They put in their whatever rod or whatever, and then they fix it, right? And then they get another x-ray. It looks good. They send the guy home, right? They can bill for that because there's an x-ray that shows that it's broken. Now, imagine the same guy comes in with a brain injury, right? And he hits his head and there's, the CT is negative, you know, it's normal and nobody sees anything. And the guy goes home and he's like, well, I'm almost okay, but I'm not really okay. And he can't do his job. And all of a sudden he's unemployed. And then he's, you know, getting a divorce from his significant other. Um, and, you know, he's destroying his social contacts and he becomes an alcoholic and then he becomes homeless and he goes into that spiral. And why? Because there's no objective measure and there's nothing that the hospital can bill for and say, hey, this was broken and we fixed it. And until that changes, we're not going to be able to treat brain injury. We have to have objective measures so that hospitals and clinics can bill for them so that we have an incentive to make these people better. And when, when brain injury gets the same respect as a broken bone in someone's leg, then mm -hmm. we're gonna have progress. I think there is a, uh, <clears throat> sorry, it's okay. talking about myself is always still hard. Yeah. Uh, there is a, <clears throat> there is a chapter in my book uh, that is called, uh, it discusses that brain injuries are invisible. Yeah. At one point when I was going through speech pathology therapy, you know, I had that realization that when I'm walking around in my job and I was trying to recover and I was trying to work with people again, uh, I realized that if I had a broken leg, then it would be an outward sign that I had something wrong with me. If I had a broken arm, you know, I had my arm in a cast. Yep. Uh, it would be indicative. People would help me. They'd go, oh, let me open the door. Oh, let me carry that for you. Yep. But the brain injury part of me was invisible to people. Yep. Early on, I found myself saying, yeah, I have a brain injury, which was really, honestly, in the long term, I discovered it really wasn't the best approach because they got this look, people got this look on their face like, oh my God, he's going to be a serial killer or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, yep. You know, a lot of them, the reactions were really different. They just kind of like, what the hell am I dealing with here? Who is this guy that has a brain injury yet he's talking to me? Because yeah. I don't know what they thought. But uh, yeah, I get where you're going. And basically, what I the other part of that chapter has to deal with the idea that n no doctor can tell you where you're going, really. Yeah. If you're a patient that has a brain injury, it's kind of up to you to determine you know, how are you feeling, communicating with your doctors on an honestly, because I, I'll tell you what, as a 58-year-old guy now, it's easy to lie to doctors all the time. Like, how much are you drinking? Oh, a six-pack a week. Well, okay, maybe it's two cases. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
it's easy to look at them and go, hey, how are you feeling? Well, you're depressed as hell, and you say you feel fine. Because yeah. that's what we do, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there's really a question here, but I guess Maybe. my own experience with it is, yeah, it's incredibly invisible. How are you going to ever be able to measure something like that? There's not a measurement for – we can't even tell – we can't even define what human consciousness is. Yeah. No, How are you going to measure that? Objective measures for neurologic function, for mental health, for happiness, for pain, for, for all of these things. That's what my lab is working on. Where, you know, eye tracking will go a long way towards giving visibility to brain injury um, because you know, if your eyes aren't working, that means there's something wrong. Uh, 40% of the brain is involved in control of eye movements, so that will help. Serum markers will also help, um, and algorithmic radiographic measures will also help. There is hope. I mean, I think that there's going to be significant progress. It's a matter of changing the structures so that we treat mental health and neurologic health as significantly as we treat, you know, your kidneys, your heart, your bones, things that we can easily see and easily measure function on. This was a lot to absorb. I do have one more question, and it's a personal question. You have to, between the time I've seen you and now, yeah. you have to have had seen hundreds of patients. Yes. How the hell do you remember who I am? Well, number one, <laughs> I see relatively few patients who don't need surgery. Um, so that, that actually was one thing that I remembered about you. Um, and you were, you were very patient with me. I remember I was in a huge hurry when I saw you because I had a trauma that I was dealing with. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I remembered that about you. And then the other thing was the football connection. So you, you had mentioned some connection to football. And, you know, hardly anyone comes in my office with a football-related problem. Um, so I know your problem wasn't related to football directly, but you're active in that community. And, and so that's why I remembered you. But I, I used to have, when, when I was a, a resident in neurosurgery residency, I had a photographic memory. Um, and I think all these years of taking call have, have made it worse. I still have a pretty decent memory, but it's, it's not what it used to be. But, uh, you, you know, you sort of stood out. That's why I remembered you. I thought you were going to say I had a beautiful smile. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'll tell you this story, it, and it's in the book also, but I did meet with, I think it was a pharmacologist, if that's the right term, at HCMC at one point. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, I've read your medical history. You're an amazing man. And then at the end of the appointment, she said, I'd like to see you again. And I went home and I told my wife and she goes, she goes, how was the appointment? And I said, well, I met a beautiful woman. She told me and I was an amazing man and she wants to see me again. <laughs> my wife did not think this was as funny as I did. Well, <sighs> understandably. Is there anything else that we should end with that I haven't asked you that you, you should tell us? No, I think, you know, I appreciate all you're doing to, help educate the public about these complex problems because they're not simple. And so the more we can talk about them and the more we can understand them and explain them to regular people and everybody um, is, is fantastic. Well, we're going to end there. This has been John's post post-life crisis and uh, thank you all for listening. Go big red. And thank you, Dr. Uzma Samadani for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs>